0: All right, if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 7? If you're going to use a red Bible, uh, which should be available nearby, it's on page 504. We are beginning a a new sermon series today that will go for a few weeks, and we're calling it Summer of Love. Uh, Summer of Love. When my family moved to Mayfield, Uh, We moved here with the hope and dream of starting this church, of creating a community of people who were defined by God's grace, who are marked by God's love. And we wanted to be a community that invited our neighbors to experience that love for themselves too. We moved to Mayfield in the fall of 2019, uh, right at the end of the fall, right at the beginning of winter. And if you know anything about winter in Northeast Ohio, it is cold and dark, and no one wants to go out and do anything. And so our dream of like starting a new community where we're meeting a bunch of people, well, that had to be put on pause for a little bit. Well, then it started warming up, and last March, you know, we, uh, with the rest of the world, were thrown headlong into a global pandemic that specifically targeted groups of people gathering together. I mean, that's what the pandemic was all about. It was preventing people from gathering together. And so last summer, everything was canceled. I mean, every event was just gone. And there wasn't any way for us to get out there and actually love our neighbors. And we we tried creative ways of doing it, but it was really hard. And, you know, this last nine months has been challenging. But now, it it finally feels like we're entering this post-pandemic world. Like, events are happening again. Everything's opening up. We don't have to wear our masks here right now. We're really entering a new opportunity this summer to love our neighbor. And that's what this church exists to do, to love our neighbors, to, to invite them into the story of Jesus. And so we're excited to have events like the one that we had last night, the bocce tournament, where we got to meet neighbors and connect with them and build relationships with them. We're going to be doing things like that all summer long. And so we're doing this series to focus our attention on what does it mean to experience and to share God's love? What does it mean for us to be a church defined by, marked by love? Love for God, love for one another, and love for our neighbors. So that's what we're going to do the next uh, four weeks, and then we'll do something different in July. But today, before we talk about what it means to love our neighbor, we need to take a step back and ask, how do we even do that? The John writes in his letter that we love because he first loved us. We love our neighbors. We love each other because he first loved us. And so this morning, we're going to focus our attention on that, God's love for you, God's love for us, and and what that means for us. Specifically, that love demonstrated in his forgiveness of our sins. And so we're going to look at this story from Luke chapter 7 about a sinful woman whose sins are forgiven. And the big idea of our sermon today is this, the deeper our sense of God's forgiveness of our sin, the greater our love for him will be. The deeper our sense of the, God's forgiveness of our sin, the greater our love for God will be. And as we look at that idea, we're going to ask three questions of this passage. How bad is it? How should we respond? And who can do such a thing? How bad is it? How should we respond? And who can do such a thing? Let's read and pray and look at this passage. Luke 7, starting at verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but... loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to be people who know our sin, but know your love more. And so we pray through your spirit that you would awaken our understanding of your word and that it would convict us and lead us to joy in your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. How bad is it? It's pretty bad. I uh, I hate going to the doctor. Maybe you do too. I, I don't like going to the doctor's office because I feel like every time that I have gone or would go, that the doctor is just going to tell me that there's something wrong with me. And that something wrong, well, it needs to be fixed. And I hate hearing that. Like, I hate hearing that I need to change my diet or start a new exercise routine or start taking medicine or have surgery. But those are all what are needed to happen to fix what might be wrong. But I I hate going to the doctor, I'd rather live In this blissful ignorance, as if nothing was wrong, maybe you have felt similar. In our story, Luke shares about two people, two people who who both have something wrong with them, but only one of them is willing to acknowledge that it's happening. Only one of them is willing to admit that something is really bad. That's the sinful woman. The Pharisee, on the other hand, there's something wrong with him, too, but he prefers to live in that blissful ignorance. He can't admit how bad it really is. Let's get into the story. Some background information, Jesus has been invited by Simon, this Pharisee, to have dinner. Now, this isn't like an invitation-only dinner, Back then, these kinds of dinners, and we see this happen all the time in the Gospels, Jesus goes, and it's this big, large event happening at a pretty wealthy person's house in the middle of the city. It's got a large courtyard and many rooms attached to it. So this is where the dinner is happening. And, And people are coming in and out. The gates are open, and people are coming in and out for the dinner. You know, they might not be sitting down for the dinner, but there's people there maybe even doing business with other people there or, you know, trying to catch up with people, people seeing people they haven't seen in a while. So there's people coming and going, and Jesus is there, but Jesus is now off on the side room, the formal dining room, where there's this table on the ground for formal dinners. And around this table, there's, there's these three pillows. And the way that people ate at these formal dinners, uh, you, you lay down with one arm resting on the pillow and the other arm you'd use for food. You'd laying on your side and the rest of your body and feet were extended behind you. And, and front to back, front to back, you lined up laying on these pillows around this table and have dinner together. That's, that's the scene that we've got here. And it's as this dinner is going on, when Jesus is reclining at the table, that this woman of the city... This sinful woman who's probably in the courtyard, in the shadows, steps out, goes behind the table to where Jesus' feet are, and begins to anoint him. Who's this woman? We don't know much about her. We don't know her name. We don't know where she came from. We don't know what happens to her after this. Most uh, commentaries or, or the church tradition has always assumed that this woman was a prostitute. Perhaps by the the reason that she's, you know, she lets down her hair. Um, she's known as a woman of the city. People sort of know about her. People assume she's a prostitute. We, we don't need to know that or not. What we do know is that she knows and everyone else in the house knows that she's a sinner. And that's what Luke says. That's what Simon the Pharisee says. This is a sinner and she knows it too. She knows that she's not welcome there. She knows that she's not welcome even to touch Jesus. She is a sinner. Perhaps it was the way she wore her hair, maybe it was the clothes that she wore. Maybe it was the way that she did her makeup. Maybe it was the words that she would say to other people. Maybe it was the the crowd that she ran around with. It was the kind of person that, like, anyone could look at her and know without a shadow of a doubt, that's a sinner. Who is that today? Like, who, who do you see, and based upon what they're wearing or what they're saying, or who they're with, or what they do with their lives, who today, when you look at them, youth say, there's a sinner. What's fascinating about this story is at the end, it's that sinner who is closest to Jesus. And it's the Pharisee who doesn't think that he's a sinner, he's farthest from Jesus. You see, the Pharisee, you know, he doesn't think that he's perfect, but he doesn't think that he's nearly as bad as this woman. He thinks he's a little sinner. That woman, she's a big sinner. This this guy, he thinks he's a little sinner. This woman, along with everyone else in the room, she knows that she's a big sinner. Like, she knows what's wrong with her. She knows that she's not allowed to be there. She knows she shouldn't be touching this man, but she goes anyway because she's heard about Jesus and she's throwing herself down at the feet of this man. She knows she's a big sinner. Pharisee on the other side, he thinks he's a little sinner. What about you? Do you think of yourself as the woman in the story? Or when you look at yourself, are you like, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm really not, not all that bad. Little sinners say things like the Pharisee said in verse 39. If this man were a prophet, he would know who this was, what kind of person she is, who's touching him. She's a sinner. That's what a little sinner says to other people. They're sinners. Here's some diagnostics to ask yourself, are you a little sinner? I can't. Little sinners say things like this. I can't believe what that person's doing with their life. Can you believe it? I would never do that. Little sinners say things like this. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not as bad as they are. You know, when we were younger, teachers would have us line up like tallest or shortest and line outside in the hallway. Little sinners think that there's this cosmic line And all you care about is where do you stand in relationship to others? Yeah, I'm not perfect, but thank God I'm not like that guy. Little sinners, they're worried about being around other sinners. You know, this Pharisee said, does he know who's touching him? Little sinners are worried that if you associate with sinners, that somehow that sin is contagious and you're going to catch it. So little sinners separate. They distance themselves from their neighbors. Little sinners, they don't experience God's love like this woman is. Little sinners think of God's love as something small, distant, unexciting. There's a lack of joy. So what are you? Are, are you a big sinner falling at the feet of Jesus or are you a little sinner looking around comparing yourself to others? Look, the the... The, the first step of 12-step programs, no matter what it is, the first step is always admit there's something wrong. Admit there's something wrong. This morning, if you're a little sinner, admit it. As, as soon as you start admitting that you're a little sinner, well, you're going to grow in your understanding of the depths of your sin. And the good news is The good news of being a big sinner is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Like it is good news to understand the depths of our own sin. So let us join with this woman falling at the feet of Jesus. Desperation. Seeking his mercy and his forgiveness. Let us respond to Jesus the way that this woman responds to him. That leads me to my second point. How should we respond? How does this woman respond to Jesus? Well, she shows him adoration. She shows him love. Jesus, seeing what's going on and knowing what's in the Pharisees' mind, shares this parable about these two people who have been forgiven, and the the conclusion of his parable demonstrates that her great love for Jesus is because she knows how big of a sinner she is and how greatly God has forgiven her. Jesus is the one that makes this connection, that her great love is because she has been forgiven greatly. And in contrast, the parable says that the Pharisees' lack of love is because he has not been forgiven. See how Jesus makes this comparison in verse 44. He says to Simon, do you see this woman? When I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears. and She's washed them with her hair. You gave me no kiss to greet me. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. The difference is abundantly clear. She has loved me, you have not. She is adoring me and you are not. Her sins have been forgiven and his have not. And he says on in verse 47. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she has loved much this is the big idea the deeper we understand god's forgiveness of our own sin the greater our love for him will be or to put it another way the proper response to experiencing the love of god is to love him back the the proper response to experiencing the forgiveness of God is to adore him, to worship him. And that's exactly what this woman does. She has come in and she has taken her tears and her kisses and this ointment and is adoring Jesus. This, this, This anointment, this perfume, it was an alabaster stone jar That most scholars think that this kind of thing would have been valued at just about an annual's average day laborer's wage. So think the average annual salary, that's how much this jar was worth. And she goes to him and uses that thing, which is extremely valuable, and worships Jesus with it. She is adoring him. This is what it means to adore something. is to reorder the values of your life in such a way that they are valued and ordered around the thing that you adore. To adore something is to reorder your values and priorities. The things that once held of a high value in your life become small in comparison to Jesus. I love the TV show, The Office, and I feel like there's plenty of like, illustrations and anecdotes that, that are suitable for any part of life, but there's this one scene later in the show when Michael Scott, the boss, uh, he's proposing to Holly the love of his life, and uh, he, he proposes and she says yes, and she shows people the ring, and everyone is shocked. At the size and beauty of this diamond ring. And Michael is surprised why everyone's shocked. And he says, I'm just following the rules. What is it, three years' salary for the ring? Okay. The rule of thumb is three months' salary. And he got it wrong and had saved up three years' salary for this ring. But he didn't care. He didn't care. Because the value of adoring his soon-to-be bride was of such significance that money just wasn't even an issue anymore. That's what it means to adore, is to reorder the values of your life. Do you adore Jesus? Is your life are the values and priorities of your life ordered in such a way that demonstrate that you adore Jesus? What would it look like? The first thing you wake up and doing, you do in the morning, is it? You, do you check your email? Do you start thinking about your day's schedule? Do you worry about what your family's going to do? What would it look like to reorder the first 30 minutes of your day in adoration to Jesus? What would it look like to take one day out of the week in complete rest and worship and not care about getting stuff done around the house, making sure your homework's ready for the next day, make sure you've got time for yourself? What would it look like to order your life in such a way that you adore Jesus one day out of the week in rest and worship? What would it mean to adore Jesus reordering your life that places a high value on being part of his church? recognizing that when we gather together, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week, that we are the people of God gathered into the presence of God to be fed by the word of God. Is that not of infinite value in your life? To adore Jesus is to reorder your life's values and priorities around him. If we can see what we adore by looking at what priority and value we have, I wonder if someone would look at your life and look at what you value and what you prioritize and ask, what do you adore? Who do you adore? The proper response to experiencing the love of God is to adore him. We have to ask, how do we do that? Like, how can we become the kind of people that adore him? We have to ask this last question then. Who could do such a thing? Meaning, who is this man, Jesus, who is claiming to forgive sins? Who could do such a thing? In verse 48, Jesus turns to the woman and says, Your sins are forgiven. And everyone else at the table looks at him and says to themselves, what's happening? Who does this guy think he is? Who could do such a thing? They're rightly wondering, how is Jesus able to make this claim? And they're bringing up two objections. The first is this, only God can forgive sins. Is Jesus claiming to be God. Yeah. He is, and and they're right. Only God can forgive sins. Around us, we sin, be it against someone else, ourselves, or the world around us. Ultimately, that sin is against God. In in the. Judeo-Christian worldview, we believe that God was the one who created the heavens and the earth and everything and everyone in it. And because that's true, he has a vested interest in everything in his creation. And so when we sin against someone or something in his creation, we are ultimately sinning against him. Even if it is sinning against a friend or a family member. Ultimately, it is against him. Yeah, even small, petty sins are against him. Even sins that we feel like, oh, they're harmless. No one's really getting hurt by this. They're against him. He is being hurt by that. Even when we think that we're getting away with sin, we're doing it in secrecy. No one else knows what we're thinking or what we're saying or what we're doing. That is sin against God. King David understood this in Psalm 51 when he's confessing his sin against Bathsheba. He committed adultery with her and then, and then murdered her husband. He writes this confession of sin and says, against you, God, have I sinned. Yes, he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, but he ultimately was sinning against God. If we want to understand the depths of God's love in forgiving our sin, the first thing we have to do is recognize that every one of our sins is against God against an eternally good and holy and loving God. I'll often hear from non-Christians objections about the idea of hell. Like, how could God send people to hell? Eternal punishment, eternal separation. I just don't understand. I mean, my sins aren't that bad. How could God punish me like that? Well, they're failing to understand that whenever we sin, it is sin against an eternally good God. And the punishment has to match that action. And so hell is eternal separation from that loving God. But that's a topic for another sermon. So that's the first thing. We have to understand that our sin is ultimately against God. But then the second way that we come to this deep understanding of God's love for us We have to look at the second issue that they have with Jesus claiming to forgive sins. They say, who is this man who claims to be able to forgive sins? Is he able to pay the cost of forgiveness? This comes from the parable. In the parable, Jesus says there's a money lender, and he's lent out money to two people. Now, the time has come for them to pay it back. And one person, well, he owes 500 denarii, and another person, he owes 50 That's uh, roughly $50,000 versus $5,000. And they're forgiven. Debts wiped clean. And that's the end of the parable, but it's not the actual end of the story. Because if this happened in real life, if the moneylender said, it's all right, I forgive you, well, he has to go back to the person that he got that money from. And he has to account for that money he's going to have to pay it out of his own pocket. There's always a cost to forgiving someone. Or or think of it this way. There's a lot of talk in politics right now about uh, student loan forgiveness. And whether you agree with that or not, that's besides the point. But in every conversation about student loan forgiveness, like someone is bound to raise the objection, well, someone's going to have to pay for it. It's either going to come out of our taxes or, or what? Someone's going to have to pay for it. It's the same thing. Forgiveness always comes with a cost. Uh, Theo and I just started playing baseball in the backyard uh, with a little T-ball thing. and um, Thankfully, he's not that good now. But as he increases in his skill, I'm going to be worried that he's going to hit those balls and they're going to crash into one of our neighbor's windows. Look, if, if, if that happens, we're going to walk over, we're going to knock on the door, we're going to say, we're sorry. And look, our neighbor, Mark, Mark has an option. He can say, all right, Theo and Jeremy, that's going to be $150, or how, I don't know how much Windows costs. That's going to be $150. Or Mark can say, it's all right, I forgive you. And then we close the door. Now, Mark is not going to just go on with his life with a broken window. Someone has to pay for the repair. Yes, he can forgive us. But when he forgives us, what he's saying is, I'll cover the cost. I'll pay the debt. I'll cover the problem. Their question to Jesus, who is this man? How can he forgive? They're wondering, how is Jesus able to pay the debt for this woman's sin? Well, Jesus knows. He knows that what he's about to do within three years of it for this, he's going to be hung on a cross and pay the debt for this woman's sin. When he's on the cross dying, he is going to shout, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he's going to be experiencing that punishment, that separation from God that you and I deserve to experience because of our sin. He is going to experience the debt that you and I owe. Yes, we are forgiven, but only because he was willing to pay the price. This is God's love for us he died for us. And this is what this woman knew. She looked at Jesus and she saw this man who would give himself up for her. And she responds with adoration, almost a reckless kind of love, where she did not count the consequences of her actions She understood that the value of worshiping and adoring this person was far greater than any value of what she possessed. She was willing to give it all up for him because she knew he would be willing to give it up for her. Do you believe that that's true for you? That Jesus is willing to give it up for you? I grew up in the church, and for so long, I believed that Jesus died for us. But that us was a generic, non-personal us. It was not until I understood that Jesus died for me that I began to understand what it meant to adore him and to experience that love. Do you believe that Jesus died for you? Do you believe that on the cross he was looking through time and saying, I am doing this for you. I am giving up my life for you. I love you. I will pay the price for you. Until we see the depths of God's love for us, personally, individually, until we see the lengths that Jesus took to forgive our sin, until we see that our experience of God's love will be shallow, it will be small, it will be little. But when you see just how bad it is for you, and and when you see the lengths at which Jesus took to pay your debt. When you see that you're not just a little sinner, but a big and ugly sinner, and then see that Jesus poured out his blood that covers you now and makes you beautiful in his sight, when you begin to see that, your love for him and your experience of his love will grow. And only then will you be able to love your neighbor the way that God calls us to. We want to be a church that loves our neighbors. You're probably sick of hearing me say that. But that's what the Christian church is supposed to be about. The only way we can love our neighbors the way that we are called to is if we first have received and experienced the love of God to us the deeper that we understand his love for us and forgiving our sins, the greater our love for him will be, and as a result, our love for our neighbors will increase. Jesus loves you. He died for you. He gave up his life for you. Do you believe that? Let's respond and adore him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a great God. You are so great, and your greatness of love is demonstrated that while we were sinners, while we were your enemies, you sent your Son to die for us. Lord, we stand on the power of that death. Lord, that on the cross as Jesus died, your wrath was satisfied. All of our sin was laid upon him. Lord, through your spirit, we pray that you would enlighten our understanding of that reality so that we too could experience your love more and more and share it with those around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.